This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Kimberly Braun. Uh, Kimberly is a person who has had deep spiritual experiences since about the age of four. Uh, those experiences uh, led her to a uh, monastic order. Uh, she became a Carmelite nun and I believe spent ten and a half years in the monastery. Then around 2001 decided her vocation, her calling would take her out of the monastery and she has been uh, leading a spiritual life, teaching a spiritual message uh, since then. Welcome to the show and thank you so very much for the, taking the time to come on today, Kimberly. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great to be here with you. Uh, Kimberly, um, when we became aware of you and your work, uh, one of the things that um, intrigued us um, was your calling and then your second calling. <laughs> uh-huh. So maybe you could fill us in on um, the background, what led you into the Carmelite order in the first place, and then we can get to what led you to uh, leave. Yes. So really on the essence level, I have found that it's been just mainly one propelling force in my life, and that's the experience of, of love of actually divine love and or the divine love being my lover. And that started happening spontaneously when I was really little. And I think a lot of children, if I would venture to say all children, are very, very open to the ineffable and the transcendent. And, and what might have been unique for me, though I can't say for sure, is that it peaked my curiosity, and it connected dots for me. And very early on, from my perspective, I was like, wow, this is what life is about. It's about this level of connectivity. It's about this level of relationship. This is where peace and wisdom can be found. So internally, I I made a, a commitment to that path without it consciously being, like as adults, we sit and discern. It was just a spontaneous, I want more of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Give me another ice cream cone, <laughs> that kind of feeling. And um, in my late teens, my experiences that were very unitive, catching me up in deep, deep states that had a blissful quality to them, would happen as though I were being pursued with fire. And it would happen for hours throughout a day. And I would be completely taken up. A lot of extraordinary phenomena would happen in relation to that. So basically, in my late teens, I was looking for a sense of belonging, uh, people who might understand, people to be in community with. And I failed out in California to find a spiritual director that understood. And I was very naive and a little wary about sharing these internal experiences because in my estimation I felt so like a nothing <laughs> so like who who am I and I had judgments in that that I don't have today long story short somebody gave me the story of Teresa's autobiography Teresa of Avila and when I was beginning to read it I began to weep weep and in that weeping, I found 
that she and I were having the same experiences. And I finally was like, oh, somebody. And it awakened within me a deep relationship with her as well. So the Carmelites became my friends and confidants and people I was playing with in this world. And it was very natural to join a monastery to be with the beloved. So my reason for entering was really simple, but it was impelled. We'd like to think it was a choice, but I don't know that I could have done something different. I was so on fire. How how old were you when you joined the monastery? I was 24. Yeah, the experiences started in a dramatic way when I was 18 or 19. It was happening throughout from when I was four on, but they were um, smaller and situated in my in my life right. in such a way that it just was in harmony. And then all of a sudden they became so dramatic that my life shifted into them. Mm-hmm. And that's when it eventually led me to join the monastery so that I could explore this playground. Kimberly, if I could ask, uh, yeah. I have uh, uh, friends that are, I have one particular, one friend in particular who's a Trappist monk, and uh, lifestyle being very similar, I would think, to the Carmelites. It's a uh, reclusive, you know, uh, order. Uh, yeah. And uh, I know when, when you uh, go into the monastery, it's a fairly arduous process to be accepted. They don't just take anybody in, and they really screen people. When you went to them at, at 24, and you were having these uh, very deep spiritual experiences, do you felt they understood what you were experiencing? Were there other nuns there or sisters that were uh, having those experiences, or was it something uh, they could not relate to? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Since that tradition lives in silence and is cloistered, I didn't really have dialogue with the community as a whole. Mm Mm-hmm either before entering or upon entering. So what their inner life was like was, a, was hidden to me. But I do remember that conversations with the two leaders in the community um, didn't yield a sense of being understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there would be little things said here and there after I had entered, not to me, but just in general of mystical experiences that I, I didn't align with. Uh, so... So no, uh, from observation though, uh, we all deeply affected each other and entered into a, a, a sense of communion that was very psychic and very intuitive. So I feel that there was a, a full range of what others were experiencing. Uh, one nun in particular, I feel probably had similar experiences, but many others gave evidence that they didn't, mm-hmm. at least not that dramatic where you lost awareness of your surroundings. Mm-hmm. Were you, yeah. um, when you went in at 24, <clears throat> um, that's uh, very different from going in, say, at 17 or 18. There's years of life experience that you bring to it when you're 24 that you wouldn't otherwise. Um, had you been to college? Had you been married? Uh, what, what kind of life were you leading when you uh, entered the monastery? Yeah, so um, when the experiences started happening in my late teens, it really influenced my choices. I, I, I do have my master's and all of that. I love school, but at that time in my life, I felt like undergrad was a waste of time. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
I think Phil and I had so, similar experiences. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I had that typical impetuosity of like, you know, don't waste my time. You know, I don't like, and, um, but I also have this deep conviction that when we're really in our passion, whatever we need comes into our process. So if like my passion had been something that needed education, I probably would have gone that route. Um, I did actively date. My spirituality has always been incredibly embodied. Uh, I find that the more I even immerse in ancient tantric texts, that speaks to my, what was Christian mysticism for me, just by way of experience. So I would have gotten married had I met somebody that I felt was running along that path. And I found that I met was meeting great guys, uh, had some really deep relationships, but I, I'm an Aries. So I was like, I wanted somebody that was going to like run on this path. And the men I met in the early twenties just weren't that interested. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh, so my cup ended up being filled with the uh, immaterial presence of the divine, though passion and sexuality and expressiveness and desire in all its forms uh, fit in my mystical experience. Uh, So I was going to school. I was working with the poor out in Santa Cruz. I was in community with about five or six other people who were having very dramatic experiences in their own way. And it was kind of a launch pad for going deeper. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Kimberly, I assume you grew up Catholic, and uh, I, I, I also grew, grew up Catholic, Catholic and yep. the mystical traditions I didn't learn about until I was in my 20s and had been involved in meditation and whatnot, so it was new to me. Was, was there any mentor for you, or did you read anyone like Thomas Merton, or uh, someone who uh, gave you guidance either directly or, or through their writings that uh, put you in the direction of entering a monastery? Yeah, the only, it's a great question. I, too, was unaware. Um, I would say my greatest guide was that growing up, my mom and dad were very involved in the charismatic renewal. Mm -hmm. And so spontaneous gifts of spirit were alive in our home. And they, too, were very much more concerned about the experience of love and charity and being kind than they were of any particular dogma. Um, another mentor for me was ritual. The Catholic ritual system was an incredible construct into which I felt a natural desire to surrender into. Uh, I did not have any books. I, even when I searched things out in California, uh, people, direct people as mentors, just for whatever reason, evaded me. So it was only once I got introduced to Teresa of Avalon John and that, and I was far along in saying yes to this path Mm -hmm. that I found they were more friends than they were helping me understand what I was entering into. Um, Kimberly, um, we don't get that many people who have had uh, spent 10 years in a monastery. We, uh, we have a lot of uh, people who are, uh, who have spent many uh, months and weeks in retreats and that sort of thing, but not, very few who have given up, um, uh, who have made vows and and gone that right. far. So so uh, we're intrigued by what that 
experience was like, and um, we probably have a lot of people listening who who think, maybe I'll go into an ashram yeah. for a month. <laughs> I get this all the time. Yeah, right. 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 <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I have, uh, we all have had those thoughts uh, until we try it for a while. Um, um, so what was it like? What was the hardest adjustment for you? Um, right. Uh, there were two hardest adjustments. The first was that I didn't realize how, how limited my contact with family and friends would, was going to be. Uh, I, I just didn't think to ask what mm-hmm. the protocol was for that. And so I learned it upon entering, and I was, I was shocked. Um, <laughs> what, what so was it? that part was hard. Mm-hmm. It was writing letters once every six weeks, oh, receiving letters at certain points, and that was only with family, and, and it was not with friends. Friends could be in contact with the monastery as a whole. They could come to my vows ceremonies, but uh, I had I had to let go of all my friends. And so, my mom and dad were really great. They actually, when we learned that, they actually got in contact with the people that were closest to me, hmm. and and kind of maintained a thread. So that part was hard. Um, the second part I think that was hard is that I I thought there would be a little more sharing among us mm. about sweet experiences um, and that that in our particular observance, which was far more traditional, uh, that wasn't there either. And that, that I missed, yes. And was it arduous? Were there, um, was it very disciplinal? Was there a lot of work, a lot of um, yeah, uh, times when you very... had to show up? Yes, it is. I loved it. Now, I'm I'm someone who doesn't seek out structure. I usually rebel against structure because it feels claustrophobic or it hems me in. But I was so clearly in this deep state of passion that the structure was simply the setup for me to go deeper. So I didn't even notice it, but we did. We got up at midnight and we'd spend about an hour, hour and a half in chant and meditation and prayer. Wow. We got... We got up again in a, at 5.30, and we spent an hour in meditation, half hour in chant and prayer, an hour with liturgy. Uh, then we we fasted a lot, but we also ate off the land, so we ate very well, too. Mm. Uh, we, we had small meal if we weren't fasting, and then we were back in the chapel for about a half hour. Then spiritual reading time, an hour of work, another half hour of chant and meditation, our main meal would be around noontime. Then the afternoon would be uh, work time. And if you were in solemn vows, that's after four and a half years of your spiritual boot camp, <laughs> uh, you had an hour of free time. And then we had uh, classes if you were in formation, another hour of meditation, another half hour of chant. Somewhere in there, you also had your own private holy hour because we kept vigil in the chapel. So mm. we did this baton trading off. We were a strong, big community. We had other, over 20 women there. Then uh, that would be about six. Then we'd have a small meal, usually like a soup kind of thing. Then our one time a day that we would talk, we got together after that. And then we had night prayer and then entered grand silence. We were usually in bed around nine-ish. Wow. And Can I get that? One follow-up question, yeah. Dennis. 
Um, sure. You mentioned periods of meditation. What was the practice? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was wide and varied. It, it was not as, because I teach meditation uh, now, and I, I draw upon a number of different traditions, techniques, and modalities. Uh, we, you know, we had Ignatian exercises. We had Carmelite contemplative practices. We read a lot, a lot of books that were lovely explorations of presence, the practice of presence. Um, for me, because living the silence aspect for me has been such a, a matrix that I feel like I'm always in, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had a practice. Mm. So there was a spiritual director that was the oldest nun in the community, really sweet woman. And she probably worked differently with everybody. Um, for me, I loved anything with John of the Cross's writings. His, his writings just plunged me into a really deep state. Um, so to answer your question succinctly, the practices were more tailored probably to each individual, and I uh. had less need of developing a technique. Mm -hmm. uh, uh. Right. Uh, Kimberly, um, it's, it's a fascinating story, and, and I... I, uh, like I mentioned, I, I do know <laughs> folks that have uh, men that have been in a monastery and very similar experiences. Some have stayed, some have left. Uh, one, one of the things that I read about you, and I, I think I heard in one of your talks, was that when you left, uh, uh, they didn't make it so easy. They didn't encourage you to follow your impulse at that time, but uh, tried to make you stay. And I think that's very common in spiritual groups. I, I've even had that experience being on meditation courses where I thought, Okay, I've had enough now. I'm ready to, to move on. No, you know, you have to stay longer or whatever. And what was that like uh, when, when you left? Was that a, a hard uh, experience for you? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it was both hard and easy. Mm -hmm. uh, the easy part was that when I took vows, because my solemn vows are actually still one of the most beautiful days of my life. Not the most beautiful, but one of them because of the quality of it, not because of the vow, but the mm -hmm. quality of the experience. And I never looked back. I mean, never. I never thought about leaving. I, never, I just never looked back. I was like on a trajectory that was mm -hmm. moving fast. And when I ended up being called into building the monastery down in Texas and all that happened there, I think my inner landscape was being tilled unknown to me. Uh, you know how we grow and we're so influenced by by everything in our lives. And, and we oftentimes have shifts that are imperceptible. And yet at certain points we will remark that our perspective has changed or that for me usually those larger perspective changes are the result of many smaller micro shifts mm -hmm. just where the land has been tilled up and seeds have been growing. And long story short, through a series of experiences that were both ecstatic and challenging, I had an inner illumination in my little hermitage and I was washed of my vows in it. And all I can tell you is that I was walking around. And I was like, I don't think I'm in vows anymore. It was this, it was strange. And it was like, I was in a foreign land where before that I felt like I was in my community and so I began to follow on these impulses with dialogue. 
because uh, I knew then I wasn't meant to be there anymore, but it was, felt like it was love still leading me. And everywhere I looked and turned within the order, I was always meeting with a no. Within my community, it was like, no, we don't do that. I would, I would be like, well, do you think we might begin to lead retreats or have people that could come here and join us a bit? Or, or what about our education? Or, and I was always met with, we don't do that. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. We don't do that. And all those no's were cultivating this direction and led to my leaving. And because it's solemn vows, it was, it was seen that I was losing my way. That was really sad because I was very close with a lot of women and I wasn't encouraged to keep in touch. Mm. I was held as somebody that would be a bad influence because Mm. I had fallen away or I had lost my way. Uh, My prioress in North Dakota, I loved her to pieces and she loved me. Her grief was so great. Uh, She said to me, she said, I have said this to others that think they want to leave. How will you feel if you do this when you're on your deathbed? Like, Mm. that's a pretty severe question. But my inner peace was so clear. And you know what that's like. When you're in tune with that, Mm -hmm. you can't but follow that regardless of the rest. So the fortunate providence for me is I had gotten a scholarship to go to D.C. and to enter into a master's program, which ended up being seminary training. And it gave me a, a walking a walking into a community that was multi-lineage and people in all different places in their path. And it, it gave me a psychological and emotional structure that, thank goodness, because wearing plain clothes again and emerging into a computer-laden, cell phone-laden, overstimulated society was really dramatic. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Had you, you mean you applied, you applied for a master's degree program thinking you would uh, be in it as a nun? Yeah. At uh-huh. first I applied for, you have to write to Rome. So the Catholic church, you, you, it's not discerned right within your community, even though the communities are autonomous as Carmelites. Hmm. There are certain things where the line of authority is still very hierarchical. And one of them is vows. So I wrote to Rome and I I asked for what's called an exclaustration, which allowed me, because I still hoped that somehow I could stay Carmelite. I loved the charism. And that became really quickly evident six months out that that wasn't going to happen. So then I applied for dispensation. So yes, I applied. I got um, scholarship, began the program. realized about six months, seven months later that there was not going to be a place within my particular order. And my, my experience is, is a presence in everybody. And I see it even more clearly now that, that being with and working with people of every single background and history and um, tradition and is, is much more akin to the universality of my spirituality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kimberly, when, uh, so you, you, you left the order, you went and got a master's degree. Uh, when did the impulse to go out and teach others come to you and, and how and what you teach? And I know that you spent some time uh, with, with a, uh, I think, Reverend Laura Thornberry uh, studying with her. Uh, yes, did she become your I mentor? And, and tell us about your transition into actually in the world teaching. 
Sure. Well, it, it kind of happened, I think, because my natural gifts are inspired word. My, my words seem to be the way people experience shifts. So it was a bit natural. And before I had finished my seminary training, and as you know, as, as, a, as a Catholic at the time, I wasn't I was studying with people who were all going on to ordination and me as a woman wasn't, <laughs> uh-huh. but I, I was offered a, a job as a minister at a church with two other Carmelite men and they were very liberal and they held me as an equal to them, which was really unique. So mm-hmm. here I entered into ministry staff immediately upon graduating from theological union through the Catholic and church. And then while through the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though I studied with people of all different backgrounds and traditions, I even one of my theses was on chapter 25 of the Lotus Sutra. And that's, so I had an awesome education. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was beginning to do that. And then overlapping that the community began, the local community began to be a place of dynamism for me. So I was straddling working in that church and working in the local community. And my first workshop that I crafted was a five-week series called The Spirit Will Set You Free, and it draws upon the paradigm from the path work, from Eva Piaracco's work in the book The Undefended Self. And as I started doing that, that grew in huge popularity, and it just pulled me into the community. And and it, so it was kind of this organic, like, more and more happening when being pulled in as somebody to facilitate experience. And so I, um, go ahead. Oh, Laura Thornberry came down the road when I knew I needed to be ordained because so many were asking me to do ritual for them. Mm -hmm. And so she became a friend. I studied with her for about three or four months and was ordained through church of the creator and and then we lost contact after that, except she participated in some festivals I hosted and that. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I I asked you what the hardest thing about joining a monastic order was. What was the hardest thing about rejoining what we call the real world? It was the um, I had loved being in a place where I didn't need to have filters and. Everything, I was just a simple canvas to life. And entering back into the world, I entered pre-cell phone and computer. I entered, you know, right right in the beginning of the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I left post all of that. Re-entering the world, um, it was the overstimulation of mm. everything around life. Mm. And the disparate directions that everything seems to be going. There are good fruitful directions to an awesome creativity. So it wasn't all bad, mm-hmm. but the hardest thing was that I was just so simple and open and all of a sudden it was like being blasted from every direction. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I had a friend that left the monastery after so many years and he said when his father picked him up and put, they got in the car and it was outside of Atlanta and they drove in the city and he stopped at a light and, there were cars next to him blasting music. He said he just—he was just so shocked by the stimulation. But then, of course, integrated. Yeah, uh, yeah Kimberly, I wanted to ask you: <laughs> when you go before a crowd now, uh, they, uh, what is your message to them? What is your message for the world? What 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 do you want to teach people? 
I would love if I could be any kind of catalyst to people experiencing that at their very center is an eternal wellspring of source spirit that is their own, that is their life force. If they could experience that and live from that place with great confidence and abandon and integration, uh, body, mind, and soul, that's my message, that that is so, that that can be relied on, that it is the firm foundation, it's the unchanging spot in which we can navigate all the changes in our lives, and that it's a vibrational reality of who we are essentially. And that's my message. It takes a lot because I speak to a huge Mm -hmm. variety of audiences. The language is different everywhere I go for one retreat. In a couple weeks, I'll be leading, it'll draw upon the Song of Songs, Arise, My Beloved, and Come. For another retreat, it's Silence, the Matrix of Being and Becoming. For a festival, it's Asking the Questions that Truly Liberate Us. Uh, For the Revelations, it'll be drawing upon the love cause, and that calling is arising within always. It's not that we miss the boat, we don't have to have regrets, uh, we, yes, that is always arising within. Kimberly, um, the concise uh, description you gave of the, your core message um, is essentially the message of all the mystical traditions, all the esoteric traditions in the world. And there's a lot of teachers and writers and authors uh, conveying that message now. What do you feel you bring to the table as somebody with uh, the unique or relatively unique background of having spent, you know, a large portion of your adult life uh, in a monastic order? Yeah, thank you. That's a really great question. And I'm really glad that that is percolating as possibly being true through so many people. Um, One of the things that I bring is because of silence being my place of transformation and the immersion of having the joy of being being Carmelite, um, there's something I find that when I'm in the presence of someone seeking, they experience their answer. There's like a, a shifting that happens, whether it's through my words or through my presence. So there's usually a direct experience. That is something I think that I have experienced uniquely um, versus a method or Mm -hmm. a a systematic um, breakdown of it or something that can tease and open us to the possibility. Mm -hmm. That's one piece that I bring. The second is that my language is so approachable. I haven't found one person yet who feels that there isn't some level of being heard when they share their deeper hearts with me or their deeper search or quandaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we can deal with it on an essence level. So it's not so much a, uh, I have a steady platform. It's that I hold a stance of presence that allows that dialogue to remain dynamic. Kimberly, uh, thank you so very much for taking the time to come <laughs> on with us today. We will have posted up on your, on our blog, all your, schedule. I, 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 hopefully this will play before your talk in Fairfield, Iowa. 
I believe it, you said uh, the 8th of uh, July 2017, and, uh, uh, but uh, uh, we, we will have your uh, website and whatnot posted up. Any final words uh, you'd like to share with us and fill any, uh, any final thoughts or questions? Yeah, I do have one question. I think we neglected yes. to mention yes. that uh, Kimberly uh, is the author of a book about her experiences, and maybe you could give us the title and the uh, publisher. Great. Yes, so thank you. It's Love Calls, Insights of a Former Carmelite Nun. It's the first of a trilogy. The other two are written and in queue. Uh, I published through Lulu, so probably the best way is to go to my website, KimberlyBraun.com. I also have three CDs. One is All Chant, and the other two, one is my Essence Meditation Technique. It's my unique technique that I use in teaching, and the other is four sample guided meditations using breath, heartbeat, and imagination to um, that you can use for yourself or learn from and craft your own. Great. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Kimberly. A pleasure to have oh, you. Oh, thank you. So great to be with you both. So okay. great. Take good care and best of luck in your work. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great day. We'll be in touch.